0: Hi everyone, I'm your host Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey folks, welcome back to Omni Daily. Let me adjust the mic here a little. Alright, today is May 25th, 2020. It is a wonderful Monday with the um, classic Toronto summer where you had snow in April and boom, just heat warning all week classic got myself nice burns from just going out for one day and yep that's that's kind of of how I started my day trying to treat the burns with aloe but yeah so digging into what I learned today um, it was kind of a all over the place kind of day the intention was to focus on reading an annual report and I did start I I got let's say about a third of the way for the atlasian 2019 annual report read the shareholder letter uh completely but only about a third of the way into for the annual surprising because i just didn't realize how much time i'd spend in the risk factors section as well as the shareholder report i just kept on taking so many notes that halfway through i realized maybe i shouldn't be taking so many notes um But yes, I don't think I want to talk about that today just because I want to have a, I think, a more holistic view before I talk about it. So I'll talk about the things that distracted me from reading the annual report earlier. Um, I just had a lot of random, I think, inspirations that came up from all the podcasts that I was digesting. So I'll talk about a number of them. So the first one is... This one, simple one, is Chris Mayer's interview on the Meb Faber show. Um, Chris Mayer is the author of 100 Baggers. It's a book I haven't read yet, but it's, I ordered it on Amazon, and Amazon lost it, and so I have to reorder it, so I haven't had a chance to read it, but he's the author of the book, and he is also the fund manager for Woodlock House, which I think is primarily a a fund that manages family money, Uh, I think it's. The Bonner family money that he manages primarily. And this interview kind of goes over his career. Like, I was, I already was quite familiar with the 100 Baggers book. It's practically a book about all these case studies of past companies um, that are not microcaps, but there are relatively, I think, decent sizes, like small caps, mid caps, that become 100 Baggers. And it's kind of an update, if you will, on Tom Phelps' book. I think, called 100 to 1, which was the original book that I did, that studied companies that went up 100 times. And a few key learnings I had from this interview, one was the fact that the 100 baggers wasn't focused on microcaps, which made it very interesting for me because I think there's a lot of argument that is made in the microcap uh, investing universe, you know, companies that are sub 100 million, maybe even sub 200 million in market cap. And how, yeah, when you start small, you can have a long runway of going big and you know monster beverage is a very commonly cited example of that but i think the fact that the book talks about slightly more larger companies makes it more interesting because you know in microcap worlds there can be situations where even though the company is pretty trash it just kind of hits a hype train and it just skyrockets like you know some cannabis companies that pumped up i think a few years back and so it's pretty cool that I think the book focuses on more later stage companies that actually might have some kind of established advantage. And another thing I learned, more so just a curiosity on Chris Mayer's own career path was that before he ran the fund, Woodlock House, um, he was actually living out a career writing investment newsletters. So he started writing investment newsletters on the side. I think he was a private Uh, commercial lender, a private banker, and his newsletters were getting traction, and I think one, I think Bonner, um, I think it's Bill Bonner, or Will Bonner himself, uh, he's like a media titan, and so he liked Chris's newsletters and kind of gave him the opportunity to work full-time by just writing newsletters, traveling the world, writing about stocks, and I just thought that was pretty fascinating how he started out his career just... Just doing the work that he liked, just writing about stocks because he found it to be interesting and how it became a full-time career and how eventually because the newsletter was so valuable, it led to people trusting Chris and eventually leading to him getting the fund to manage capital, which I think is something that I personally you know, am dreaming about. And so that, it's just uh, an inspiring personal story for me to kind of tag on to as, okay, yeah, there's this person who... Had this kind of career path, and it's something I want to emulate. Um, something else I learned this is kind. Of, so this was an inspiration from listening to a focused compounding podcast episode on the rule of two hundred and forty, and it actually made me go back and pull out uh, my book that originally I think has this rule written into it. So the rule of two hundred and forty is kind of like the rule of 72. So the rule of 72, if you aren't familiar, is a quick and dirty way of figuring out um, how long it'll take a stock to double based on the return profile. So, you know, for example, if you had a stock that returned something like 25%, then uh, 25% per year, then you divide 72, um, 72 by 25, and that'll result in, close to three right just under three years and so that's kind of how what you should expect where if a stock were to return 25 percent per year then you should expect the stock to double in just past two and a half years and if you take it a little step further there's something called the rule of 240 and that is the 10 bagger uh, rough dirty math where same principle if you got if you had a business that returned 30 percent you divide that by Uh, you divide 240 by the 30% and you get eight. And so it'll take eight years for the stock to become a 10 bagger. Um, And apparently, so I learned about this from the focus compounding episode where Jeff Gannon and Andrew Kuhn were talking about the rule. And apparently it was actually an appendix in Ed Thorpe's book, A Man for All Markets. And so I ended up going through my bookshelf and pulling out the book, going through the appendix. And there and behold, I totally had missed it back then. And it's a continuous reminder how I feel I'll have to eventually go through my entire list of books that I'd read and kind of comb through them carefully, at least the kind of more famous classics, and try to really distill the learnings out of it. Because I think when I read this book, it was right when it actually came out into the bookstores. I, I got it as a gift from a friend, and unfortunately, it didn't have much marginalia notes, so I think that was probably... Earlier in my reading education, where I wasn't really writing much inside my books and highlighting much. So it's kind of unfortunate, but at the same time, it gives me an opportunity to read the book again so that I can actually dissect more of the learnings out of it because I think I'm, I've probably missed a lot. I think the only things I highlighted were things on blackjack and poker just because that was my fascination at the time. Um, but yeah, so that's, I think, the big thing that came out from learning about this rule. Is that I've actually incorporated as part of my investing checklist, just to think about the valuation component. Where the way I I've started valuing companies is taking the kind of more inverse approach, where you know I try to just find the IRR of the business right now, and I think something to also incorporate into this approach is yeah, like if this company were to become a ten bagger. What would that look like? You know, if I wanted to I have, if I wanted the the business to become a ten bagger in eight years, it would have to return thirty percent. You know, does that seem possible? Does that seem reasonable? And I think asking those questions and having a checklist that makes me think about that might would be pretty valuable, especially in thinking about it in the long term of thinking about five years, eight years, ten years, for example. And Yeah, even even in a 10-year path, for it to become a 10-bagger in 10 years, it has to return 24%. Is that reasonable? Do I think that's feasible? And I think that would be an awesome exercise to just kind of have to kind of finish off a investment research process. And then something I spent a lot of time, I, I think a good chunk of my day today, like all morning, as well as a good chunk of my day on Sunday was just digging into Occam's Razor. So I don't know how Occam's Razor came up uh, suddenly, but it just became an idea that just consumed my entire mind. And for those of you who are not familiar with Occam's Razor, I'm, I'm no expert on it. I, I think even my understanding at this point might still be quite uh, basic. But the what I got out is basically it's um, it's kind of a model where The simplest explanation wins so if you had two options option a and option b in most cases the option with the simplest explanation um the the simplest solution is probably the right answer and in one aspect it's kind of like uh believing in your gut and it's used in various um, professions like science you know medicine and i think it it primarily kind of came from like a lot of people a lot of scientists used in the research field to look at different options like I think people and like doctors use it to diagnose when they're in medicine as well where you know, you, there can be so many different um, factors that could lead to different illnesses but in most cases if you used Occam's razor you pick the simplest one where you know the simplest case could be like a flu, but sometimes people might make it a little more intense and go, oh, could it be like the West Nile virus or could it be malaria? And they might push it further to all these extreme cases just because people have an innate desire to, you know, sometimes overdo things like they want to go into more detail. They want more data and they want to become more specific. You know, it's kind of like how an investor might just overdo your model, you know, and have all the variables and you try to. Make it really precise and really accurate, but that might just overcomplicate things, and that overcomplication might be as a way to signal your own competence, but in reality, it might actually not achieve anything, and you and you might just make an an incorrect decision. And so, Occam's Fraser is a way to just focus on simplifying things and how maybe trusting the simplest solution is maybe the answer. And I think the Einstein quote of Um, I don't want to butcher it, so I'm going to look it up right now, Einstein Occam's razor, he has a pretty great quote, where I think I need to say the full thing, Einstein quote. come on, ah yes, so Einstein said everything should be kept as simple as possible but not simpler we, and the but not simpler is really important because it's it doesn't mean that everything just only the simple only simple things are the answer but rather um, it could have some complexity to it 100% but it should be refined to such a degree that all the fat and all the necessary stuff is out there and only the most crucial material components are factored into you know making that decision and so the the idea of Occam's Rage just kind of kept them um, coming up in my mind and I was trying to think how could I apply it in my life and there's definitely many ways and my first reference tool to think about that was go into poor Charlie's Almanac and try to put dissect some of the wisdom out of Charlie Munger I I immediately gravitated towards Charlie Munger because M- Munger constantly advocates just, I think, you know, going over, you know, six-inch hurdles, Just make just doing things that are just so obvious. Investing in companies that are just so brain dead obvious that are that are just such no-brainers. Um, and it's just always about simplifying things. And Munger also constantly talks about inverting as a mental model where he talks about how you you know if you invert something you it's kind of like say asking yourself you want to know where you you want to know the place that you would die so that you would never have to go to that place and that's kind of how he thinks about models and i think one model in particular is the via negativa model that taleb talks about where you kind of look at things with that you shouldn't be doing like you know what what constitutes a poor life? So in, in like a speech that Charlie Munger gave on like how to have a great life or how to have like a successful career, he instead talked about what a, poor, a, a bad career, but a poor life, uh, a life not well lived, would actually look like. And so if you actually focus on avoiding that, then you would actually get closer to achieving um, the former. And because I was f- familiar with Charlie's views on that, I decided I'll just go back through my My personal Bible, poor Charlie Alman. I can try to kind of read through some of his uh, speeches. I, I think I read um, chapter three, which is uh, Charlie Munger unscripted. Just a bunch of his rant uh, talks are just kind of compiled, and I read through a portion of his commencement speech for the Harvard school. Um, I think it's a high school that one of the Munger kids graduated from, and. Yeah, that just kind of got me thinking about just even what I'm doing now and just kind of mainly focusing on like the career side of things of what I, should, what I shouldn't be doing. And I kind of spent a lot of time just brainstorming what I shouldn't be doing with my time. What should I not be uh, focused on? What kind of jobs should I not be doing? What kind of things should I not be spending my time on? And just making a full list of things I shouldn't be doing. And I think that made things simpler because i can now just focus on avoiding things so as long as i'm not doing the things that are on the list i'm probably going towards the right way of doing things that i should be doing so instead of trying to focus on what i really should be doing and just honing on the one thing there i think just finding out all the stuff i shouldn't be doing has been effective so yeah that that was something i spent a lot of time on um and i'm still continuously trying to figure out how to apply that model more it's just it was a model that I learned about for the first time, I think a year ago or two years ago, but it just kind of rang in pretty hard recently and it's become a focus. Um, and I'll talk about two more learnings that I've had. So another one, I've kind of binged through the focus compounding podcast. So this one was on investing in a high inflation environment and this actually went in tandem with the recent um, The Investor's Podcast interview where they went through the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And it highlighted something, both both podcasts collectively, on the idea of investing in a high-inflation environment, and it hi- highlighted something that I hadn't really fully thought about, um, just on the concept of companies with intangible assets and pricing power. So... If I touched upon to begin with the investors podcast interview, they talked about, they played an interview with Buffett um, where he talks about how businesses that don't have to reinvest capital to grow are phenomenal. You know, classic are MasterCard, you know, a lot, a lot of the kind of fang companies like Facebook and Alphabet, i.e., Google, you know, they can just continuously grow and, you know, we need to invest. Edit, large amounts of um, capital capital to grow. And it's definitely the inverse of very capital-intensive businesses like railroads, for example, where it, as you grow, you have to continuously reinvest more capital um, because it's such a capital-intensive business. And the ho- the podcast host, Preston Pish and uh, Burris, and they caught a pretty interesting point about how, you know, Buffett practically hinted that asset-heavy businesses don't tend to do so well in a high inflation environment and how, you know, it's it's not as easy to just quickly change pricing and the business model. Um, like in tan- intangible asset-based companies like Google, for example, like Google can just change how they sell their ads and they can continuously adapt to the business environment in that, fa- in that fashion. Whereas, a asset heavy company, it can be definitely much harder because you have completely other components where you have to also think about how are you going to reinvest the capital? Like, what are the price and costs related to all that? Whereas Google can just say, okay, we're just going to reprice how we do our ads, and oh, well, it's high inflation, so we'll just adjust for that. And, yep, that's just how things will just flow through. And that tied in with the focus compounding interview where they also talked about how, yeah, and during times of high inflation, Generally, intangible and kind of software companies um, will tend to prosper. And I don't really. I'm not very in tune with my macroeconomics, and it's just completely a fault of my own. It's not that I'm not interested. I am interested, but I think I'm not as well versed in it. So it takes me quite a bit of time to just kind of sit down and think about it. So I have to play these interviews over multiple times. So so. I could fully understand what they were saying and honestly, it was a pretty fascinating thing to think about because I don't really think about inflation, deflation much when I make my investment decisions. But to also be aware that certain companies would actually get a kind of tailwind from a high inflation environment was also something important to consider in terms of the... the In one aspect, the, def- the possible defensibility of the business. Like, will it be... Um, resilient in a high inflation environment, but also actually choosing business models that could actually do very well in a high inflation environment. And then conversely, then what about a deflationary environment? Um, because you can, I can't really predict whether it be it will be a high inflation or deflationary environment, um, no matter what the various economists will talk about. But keeping that in mind, I think has been pretty interesting. And to just learn about how certain businesses can adjust prices better and just kind of getting that wrapped around in my head was pretty interesting as well. And then finally, um, I listened, I re-listened to my po- uh, podcast interview by uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy on his Invest Like the Best podcast with Modest Proposal. Modest Proposal is a Twitter handle, so it was an a anonymous podcast, but I've been a big follower of Modest Proposal for a while in the financial Twitter universe and something that I wanted to, uh, I guess re-familiarize myself with was his approach to consumer internet companies on how niche industry companies that just focus on these small niches tend to survive and actually thrive. And the examples he gives is like Match Group where they have Tinder and all the other kind of dating apps and um, as well as Grubhub as I think those are the two big uh, companies that he focused on, but just the idea on how these companies, where they have they only focus on one thing and that's kind of how they live and die, will most likely be able to win over that market compared to a larger company deciding to come in, like when you know Facebook decided to go into the dating landscape and how Match Group's stock price took a hit because of that. but. At this point, still, I believe Match Group is just thriving and they practically own much of the market and how when Amazon wanted to go into food delivery and how Grubhub stock price took a huge hit because of that, but that really hasn't panned out much for Amazon, at least not that I am aware of. And for me, that got me thinking more about the idea of... um, It kind of tied in with what I recently read back from reviewing Port Charlie's Almanac on um, I think it was the destruction of competitive competitive advantages like has a has a company been able to you know has it actually faced a challenge has it had this moat actually come under attack and was it actually able to withstand it was it actually able to actually grow stronger from it and I think companies like Match or Grubhub that can actually demonstrate the power of their mobile withstanding um, attack from a much better capitalized, much bigger uh, company can actually prove itself even further. And so I think that's something that I'll probably look for look for in future companies as well, to see when have these companies ever been attacked? And if they've been attacked, who are the attackers? Ideally, you want to see them defending themselves against more better capitalized companies. And I think this is something... Uh, Poland Capital talk talks about often as well when they try to assess modes. So this was another, I think, key factor that got kind of re-ingrained in my mind to put down into a checklist to kind of be aware of. But yeah, so these were kind of the series of learnings I had today, um, kind of all over, all over the place, but still focusing on an investing theme. Um, I think these are all mainly things that I learned to kind of add to my checklist with I guess kind of the exception of the Occam's razor where it's more kind of a more model I want to incorporate into my life um, I hope I was able to explain all these well enough I even as I was talking about it, I could tell that I was kind of rambling in some cases and I might have not explained it as clearly and that might just be the proof that I'm still learning and I've I've still not fully understood all these models yet it's a learning process so please bear with me and Yeah, I hope this was somewhat helpful and I hope you, you know, go through the notes or the links that I attach in the episode notes on the main main page so you can actually learn it for, you know, better yourself. Um, Yeah, that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed it and hope to have you back here tomorrow. Take care.